Well, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, chances are you've heard the name Charles Wesley before. Uh, Charles Wesley was a hymn writer, and uh, some of the hymns that he wrote, we sing today. Uh, for example, Oh, for a thousand tongues, or Christ the Lord is risen today, or even Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that we sing at Christmas time, was written by Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley lived for 50 years after his conversion in 1738. And uh, during those 50 years, he wrote 6,500 hymns. Uh, people have done the math and said that means that he wrote at least two hymns a week every single week for the 50 years of his Christian life. Well, Charles had a brother named John, and John was also a hymn writer, but he was more well known for his preaching and his teaching than his writing of hymns. And both Charles and John went to school together at the University of Oxford in England, and while they were there, Charles started a club. Uh, it was a club for men who wanted to be really more devoted to God. And so they started this club and they made some agreements about what they would do. They said that they would seek to live holy, seek to live blameless lives, that they would take communion every single week, that they would pray daily, that they would visit prisons on a regular basis, and they committed to spend three hours every day studying the scriptures. Well, uh, the other students on campus learned about this club and some of the, you know, devoted commitments that they made and they nicknamed it, actually in jest, the Holy Club. But the name the Holy Club just kind of stuck and more and more men began to join the club and one of uh, their members is someone you may have also heard of and that is George Whitfield, who really went on to change the English speaking world for Christ. Well, John, John Wesley left Oxford and he went out to preach and to teach and Initially, he was met with uh, disappointment and things didn't really work out well for him. After Whitfield left, on the other hand, he was met with great success. Uh, things went really well for him. Uh, he was a very charismatic, uh, very passionate teacher of God's word. He was almost theatrical, they say, and he would draw these large crowds. And when he found out that his friend and mentor, John Wesley, uh, wasn't doing so well, he asked John to join his team. John was a little bit hesitant. He wasn't a huge fan of Whitfield's super theatrical style, but he decided to join anyways, and because of his incredible organizational skills, he soon bubbled up as kind of the leader of Whitfield's movement. But the problem was in time, in time it became evident that these two men didn't see eye to eye. Uh, Whitfield, we would call him a Calvinist, and Wesley, we would call him an Arminian. They had some doctrinal differences and so the two parted ways. 
Now, Wesley went on to lead classes and groups and ended up becoming very successful. He became the father or the founder of what we know as the Methodist Church or the Methodist Movement, uh, named after the rigorous disciplines that they applied when trying to draw closer to the Lord. So in time, both men ended up becoming extremely spiritually successful. And yet they held to these differences in what they believed. And they began to even write passionate letters to one another, contending for their views. Uh, letters that would support Arminianism or letters that would support Calvinism. And just these intense and passionate discussions would go on between the two of them. And yet they continued to love and support one another despite their differences. Now, in the end of their lives, these two men, again, they changed the English-speaking world for Christ. It's been said they turned the English-speaking world upside down for Christ. Uh, Whitfield, they said, preached 18,000 sermons in his lifetime. Wesley, they said, preached 40,000 sermons. Uh, Whit, uh, Whitfield would draw such great and large crowds that they said he preached to over 10 million people in his life. And they say Wesley traveled so much preaching the gospel that he traveled a total of 225,000 miles, which is equivalent to nine times around the circumference of the earth for the gospel or for the cause of Christ. And you know, at Whitfield's memorial service at his funeral, it was John Wesley who preached. And that was at the request of Whitfield. You know, like Wesley and Whitfield, there are genuine Christians that will disagree and not agree on every single issue. But nevertheless, we must display the love of Christ to one another. We're going to think through this as we briefly look at views on eschatology and consider how and when we disagree. But before we talk about disagreement, uh, we have to talk about what we do agree on, what we believe. So we're just going to jump into our first point, and that is know what you believe. We've got to begin by knowing what we believe. There are truths that all Christians believe concerning the gospel, and we've got to know these things. We've got to know what we believe concerning the gospel and truths of the Christian faith, the bedrock of the Christian faith. We believe that we were all created by God. We see that in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The only reason that we are here is because we were created by God. We believe that the Bible teaches that God is morally perfect, he's holy. First uh, Peter 1.16 we know says that God is holy. He's absolutely flawless in who he is, in his nature and in everything that he does. We know the Bible teaches us that we as humans, every single human is not morally perfect. We've all sinned. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory, of God's holiness, of God's standard of perfection. We know Isaiah 59.2 teaches us that that sin, that uh, 
lack of perfection that we all have earned separates us from God. Sinners are separated from God is a truth that the Bible teaches. And God is not only holy, but he's also just. He's fair. He will not let offenders go without punishment because he's absolutely fair in what he does. Second Thessalonians 1, 8, 9, which we're gonna be studying shortly, talks about the fact that for those who die in their sins, for those who die separated from God, they'll spend eternity shut out from the presence of the Lord. We know that's truth that Christians believe. We also believe that the Bible teaches that God is love. First John 4, 8 tells us that God is love and because he's love, he did something amazing and that is that he, the second person of the triune God, took on human flesh. Philippians 2, 6 says that though Christ existed in the form of God, he was God himself. Theao is the Greek. He went on to take on human flesh, was found in appearance as a man. anthropos, And he did that in order to live the life that we couldn't live and to pay the penalty that our sins earned on the cross. He did that in order to be our substitute. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could achieve or attain or have imputed to us the righteousness of God. We know Jesus proved that all to be true because he rose from the dead. Romans 1.4 says he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead proving that the claims that he made about himself were true and proving that what he did on our behalf on the cross was sufficient. He was able to pay off our sins. Now we know that that's the gospel message, but we need a right response to that gospel. We know the Bible teaches that we need to repent we saw that earlier in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 that we need to turn from living for ourselves or living for idols to living for God. And we need to put our faith in Christ. We need to repent and believe. We put our faith not in our own righteousness, not in our own ability to be right before God, but in the righteousness of Christ and what he did. We see that in Philippians 3.9. We know also that if we genuinely repent and we genuinely put our faith in Christ, it's going to change us. Not only change our eternity, but it's gonna change us now. It's gonna impact who we are from the inside out, which is why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anybody is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come and we should all know these things. We should know what we believe. We're Christians. This is the, again, the, the bedrock of our belief system. It's the foundation of our faith. We should know that and we should be able to articulate that because these are things that all Christians believe. But you know, there are also things that Christians believe about things that haven't happened yet, things that are yet to come. And we use the term eschatology to talk about those things. Uh, the Greek word eschatos uh, just means last or final. So eschatology, ology, meaning uh, from logos, the word or uh, significance. 
eschatology is, in a sense, the study of the last things, the biblical doctrines of last things. And uh, you might want to grab your Bibles or pull your Bible app up on your phone so we can make sure we're all on the same page regarding what we believe concerning the last things. We believe that the rapture is coming when Jesus will gather together the church to meet him in the clouds in the air. We believe that after there's a rapture, the day of the Lord will begin or the tribulation period will occur on earth. We believe that after the tribulation, Jesus is returning to earth to judge and destroy his enemies. And then we believe that after that, we will enter into what's called the millennial period here on earth. We believe after that, the earth will be destroyed. Unbelievers will be resurrected to the great white throne judgment, at which time they will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. And we as believers will go on to the new heaven and the new earth to spend eternity with the Lord. So let's see what passages reveal what we believe there. And the first one is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Uh, I can't read the whole passage for the sake of time, but uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 talks about the rapture that's going to take place and could take place at any moment, meaning this return of Christ is imminent. It could happen at any time. And fortunately, next week, we're gonna get to spend the entire session looking at the great hope that we have in this return of Christ. But 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together, will be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We can see clearly the text says this time is coming when Christ will rapture us, when we will be caught up together with those who have died in Christ and Christ and we will meet him together in the clouds in the air. And then, you know, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which is right after this rapture passage, we see the day of the Lord will begin. This time of tribulation, this time of God's wrath being poured out on earth against his enemies. So Christians will meet the Lord in the air in the rapture, and then this great time of tribulation will begin, and we'll study this in a couple of weeks. We're gonna look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Uh, let's look real quick even at 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 9 and just see what we believe, see what's going to happen after the rapture. It says in uh, verses 5, 1 through 4, 1 through 5 of 1 Thessalonians 5, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This entire package, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. 
for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. We're gonna be gone. We won't be here. He's coming back at any time, this imminent return of Christ at the rapture. He's coming like a thief. It's unexpected. It could happen at any time. It could happen in a thousand years from now. It could happen in a hundred years from now. It could happen in 10 years from now, or it could even happen tonight. Jesus is going to come back and gather us up together. And we're to be prepared for that. We're to be ready for that. That's why the text says in verse six through eight of 1 Thessalonians 5, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We are called here as Christians to always be ready for the return of Jesus. Why? Because we don't wanna be ashamed when he comes back. We see that in 1 John 2, 28. 1 John 2, 28 says, now little children abide in him abide in Christ so that when he appears, when he comes back to rapture his church, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We wanna live in such a way that when he does come back, we're not ashamed. We're not doing anything or thinking anything or aligned with anything that would cause us to feel shame or shrink back when our Lord returns for us. We wanna make sure we're walking uprightly in the light, eager and excited for him to come back. And then verse nine of 1 Thessalonians chapter five, for God has not destined us for wrath. What a great promise. For us as Christians, we are not destined for wrath. We're not destined for this time of God's wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know the Bible teaches that after this period of tribulation, after this intense seven-year period that will happen on the planet, Jesus will return to earth. Uh, we see this in Revelation chapter 19. I'm just gonna read Revelation 19, 11 through 13 for the sake of time. But we see that Jesus himself is coming back to judge his enemies. In Revelation 19, 11, it says, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems or many crowns and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Some say the blood of the cross, some say the blood of judgment and the name by which he is called is the word of God. That's Jesus, we know who the word of God is, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here we see the word of God coming back on a white horse to judge his enemies, to make everything right, to put an end to just all the darkness and to set things in order. 
The forces of evil will be defeated and then the millennium will begin. This millennial time, this uh, reign of Christ, this peaceful reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years in which all the Old Testament promises to Israel will be fulfilled. This amazing time when God keeps his promises to Israel. We looked at that a lot in our homework, Revelation 21 through six. I'll read just verse six for the sake of time. But it says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. We see in Revelation 21 through six, this period of time, this specific marked out chunk of time repeated five times, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. God has got this on his eschatological calendar. There will be a thousand years in which the peaceful rule of Christ will be experienced on this planet. And Jesus even talked about this with his disciples. In Acts chapter one, verses six and seven, the disciples knew that this time was coming and they wanted to know when, exactly when is this going to take place? It says in Acts 1, six, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time now of your peaceful rule on earth in which the promises to Israel will be fulfilled? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now Jesus isn't saying that's a ridiculous question. There's not gonna be a peaceful reign of Christ. There won't be any millennial period. Instead he says, it's coming, but I'm not gonna tell you when. But he does say that the Father has fixed these by his own authority. God has a calendar and he knows exactly when these things are going to take place and nothing is gonna mess up his timetable or mess up his plan. He knows the structure of events. He knows the exact times and the exact seasons. He knows when unrighteousness will be judged and he knows when righteousness will come to earth and all of his promises will be fulfilled. He's got it all mapped out. The Bible goes on to teach that after the millennium, the earth will be judged, the earth will be destroyed. We see that in Revelation 20, seven through 10. And then unbelievers will stand before God where the books will be opened at the great white throne judgment. We see that in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And finally, Revelation 21 and 22 explains that us as believers, we will spend eternity with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, those things that we began talking about, those truths, those bedrock truths of the Christian faith, all Christians believe those things. But not all Christians are on the same page regarding the timing and the circumstances of the events that we just looked at. I think all Christians believe that the earth is gonna be destroyed, that unbelievers will stand before God at the great white throne judgment and be eternally cast into the lake of fire. That we as Christians will spend eternity with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth, but concerning the first four that we looked at, the rapture, the day of the Lord, the tribulation, the return of Christ to earth and the millennium, not all Christians are exactly on the same page concerning, again, the circumstances and the timing of these events. 
we would call ourselves pre-tribulation, pre-millennial. And if you think about that, it's not that hard to decode what those word means. Pre-tribulation means Jesus is coming back to meet us in the clouds before the tribulation, right? Pre-tribulation. And then pre-millennial, Christ is returning to earth to judge his enemies before the millennium. So pre-tribulation, pre-millennial, Jesus is coming in the clouds at the rapture and he's coming at the end of the tribulation and before the millennium. Now there are some out there that are mid-tribulation or they call them pre-wrath as well, which uh, believe that Jesus is coming some, at some time in the middle of the tribulation, but not right at the beginning. And we didn't even address those in the homework because their views are very close to ours. Uh, some are post-tribulation, pre-millennial. Now, I bet you can figure what, out what that is. Post-tribulation, so they believe that Jesus is coming to gather his church in the clouds at the end of the tribulation, but that he's coming to earth before the millennial, before the millennium, so pre-millennial. And then there are some who are what we call amillennial. Uh, they don't believe that that thousand year period described in Revelation 21 through six, for example, uh, is literal. They see it more as symbolic. So they don't believe that a literal millennium will take place and a lot of that is tied to their views of Israel. And they don't believe that God has a future for Israel the way that we do. And then there are some who are post-millennial Post-millennial, they believe that Jesus will return at the end of the millennium, implying that we're in the millennium right now. And as we saw in the verses, one of the characteristics of the millennium is that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And they believe that Satan is bound during this era that we're in right now. They think the reason that the gospel is bearing fruit and succeeding is because the enemy is bound. And we would say, yes, God is advancing his church, but we don't think Satan's bound right now. And add to that, there are different divisions that we can divide ourselves into, and those divisions would be known as preterism or futurism. Pre-preterism, uh, pre, things like previous or uh, preview or prenatal, pre meaning before. They believe that the events of Revelation have already taken place before. They believe that the events of Revelation really describe what happened in the 60s up to 70 when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed by the Romans. They believe that's what Revelation's talking about. Uh, we don't believe that. We're futurists. We believe that the events of Revelation are coming in the future. We believe that it's prophecy. We believe that Revelation was the last book written of the Bible and that these were events that had not taken place yet. And even within preterism, there's partial preterists and full preterists and there's different subdivisions there. So there are all sorts of different divisions and ideas concerning eschatology. But I do wanna say, I am in no way an expert on eschatology. Uh, Pastor Mike is an expert in eschatology. I mean, he has really hammered these things out. But I can say that uh, spending last summer working through a lot of this stuff and the last couple weeks as well, I am 
honestly and totally convinced that our view is correct. I mean, it just makes the most sense biblically, especially in light of the fact that Israel is a Ghana nation. I mean, if you think about it, hundreds of years ago, when uh, biblical scholars or theologians looked at the scripture, they didn't even see Israel as a nation at that time. The nation of Israel was dissolved for hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years. And God, uh, in response to something so horrific as World War II and the Holocaust, caused the members of the United Nations to recognize Israel as a nation for the first time. I mean, how amazing is that, that within the last hundred years, Israel is now viewed as a nation again. And we can see God just sovereignly orchestrating the chess pieces on the board of his grand design to move people and nations where he wants them to be because he has that eschatological calendar prepping this nation of Israel to enter into the tribulation, to recognize Christ as their Messiah and to live during the millennial period. So with that said, we're going to, in First and Second Thessalonians, look at things like next week, the rapture, uh, the lesson after that, the day of the Lord, the tribulation period. We're gonna look at uh, hell and judgment in Second Thessalonians 1. When we get to Second Thessalonians 2, we're gonna look at the Antichrist. And we're not gonna give a bunch of alternate views. We're gonna concede that concerning some of these things, there are alternate views by godly Christians, but we're gonna say right now, we know and we agree that there are alternate views. We believe what we believe and we're gonna move forward from here. We're gonna charge into what we believe the Bible teaches concerning these things. But you might ask, well, what if somebody disagrees? What do we do when someone disagrees? And I guess we can answer that question with a question, well, what is it that they disagree about? Because that's really gonna make a difference in the way that we respond. What is it that they disagree about? So the second point is skillfully sort through doctrinal differences. We need to learn to skillfully sort through doctrinal differences. Uh, our friend, Albert Moeller, who's preached here before, I know a lot of you probably listened to the briefing. Uh, Albert Moeller wrote a book called The Disappearance of God. And in the first chapter of the book, he called the first chapter a call for theological triage. And he wrote this chapter after uh, being in a crowded emergency room of a hospital. And he observed the way that the hospital staff would sort those who were coming into the hospital. Now, the word triage, which is a medical term that has to do with this sorting of people or sorting of needs, it comes from uh, the French word trier, which means to sort. So he observed this triage because in the emergency room, it's not a first come, first serve type thing. If there's maybe a, a kid in there with a bad flu or a, you know, a kid who's fallen off his bike and skidded up his knee and somebody else comes in who maybe has been in a severe car accident, maybe they have a limb blown off or they're in a life-threatening situation, they're not gonna say to that person with a life-threatening situation, oh, I'm sorry, that kid fell off his bike and he was here first. So you're gonna have to wait. Uh, that's triage. It's sorting cases according to their urgency, 
according to their need. They're gonna take the guy with a life-threatening situation and they're gonna put him, bump him up to the front and take him in right away. And uh, Al Mohler said in his chapter, we need to do the same thing theologically. We need to do the same thing with our doctrinal differences. We need to sort them or organize them into different categories. Uh, which ones are urgent and immediate? Which ones, if people adhere to these, will end up spending eternity separated from God? I mean, these things are urgent. Which are mid-level things that aren't quite as urgent? And which are third-level things? Things that we can have differences about and discuss in dialogue, but they're not gonna keep us from being able to serve together and fellowship with one another. These crucial doctrines, uh, Al Mohler called first level, second level, and third level. And with our triage, we could call them red, yellow, and green. First level, red, second level, yellow, and third level, green. Uh, Mohler said, for example, first level doctrines would be things like the full deity and full humanity of Christ, which is often under attack by those who aren't genuine Christians that Jesus is the second person of the triune God, that he took on human flesh, that he was 100% God, and at the same time, he was 100% man. He lived the life that we couldn't live, and he paid off our sins on the cross, being the God-man. Justification by faith alone, that you cannot be saved by your works that there's no way an imperfect person can ever work themselves to the holy standard that God requires. And the authority of scripture, that God has revealed his mind to us through the scripture, that there are no other group of men or any other outside group whose speakings, teachings, writings have the same authority as the scripture, that we hold everything under the umbrella of the scripture to see whether it's true or not. Those are all first level, red level type issues, doctrines, things. Because if you disagree on those things, you would be considered outside of the Christian faith and at risk of spending eternity separated from God. Second level issues, the yellow issues, are things about which uh, Christians, believing Christians, genuine Christians may disagree. Uh, these are the things that create denominations or boundaries between us. And, you know, denominations aren't bad. Denominations are things that have resulted from men who have worked hard to study the scriptures and to make decisions con concerning things, and they've come to conclusions. Uh, these second-level things would be things like, for example, baptism. Uh, do we baptize believers as we do? Or do we baptize infants? as a sign of them being part of a covenant community? Uh, do we baptize by immersion, which we do, or do we baptize by sprinkling? Now, if somebody believes that when you're baptized, you get saved, baptismal regeneration, that you know, when you baptize a child, that child is now uh, written in the Lamb's Book of Life, or that child is now saved, or you must be baptized to be saved, now this issue's gone back into bucket one, into a red level issue. But you know, means and modes of baptism, those are things that we can agree to disagree on. And then the third level issues, he would say, are 
generally issues concerning eschatology, uh, the timing and circumstances of the things of the last days. And we can serve together with one another. We can even be in the same church and have some differing views regarding our eschatology. Uh, a quote that Moeller said from this chapter that I like is that standing together on issues of more urgent importance. So those red level issues, Christians are gonna stand together on those and say, we're not gonna bend on these. Believers are able to accept one another without compromise when third order issues are in question. And I have a slide uh, that just shows real briefly first, second, third, and some quotes from Al Mohler there. And again, some of these uh, potential doctrinal differences that would go into each category. I sent this to your uh, Bible study leaders so you can grab a copy from them. But you know, like Wesley and Whitfield, we need to become Christians who can have passionate arguments and even doctrinal disagreements and yet love one another deeply concerning these third level issues. Now, if you're just super bored right now and you're thinking, I really don't care about any of this, that's not good because <laughs> those first level issues are a matter of eternity. And we just can't throw in the towel on all of this. We can't say, you know, third is the same as first and second is the same as first, and I don't really care. It doesn't matter to me. It must matter to us because it matters to God. Our doctrine, what we believe matters to God. And again, these first level things would keep someone from the presence of God forever. And at the same time, we can't be over the top concerning all of these things. We can't be over the top concerning our eschatology as to where we would unnecessarily war and divide over these things. So we've got to learn how to skillfully sort the differences. And we learn that uh, by learning and by practice. I stumbled upon a website that was called How to uh, Teach a Nurse to Become a Triage Nurse, a nurse who sorts through these things. And there were four things that they say they do to help a nurse become a triage nurse. And the first was academic learning. I thought, well, that's perfect. That's what we do, right? We study our Bibles daily. We attend church on the weekends. We come to things like women's Bible study so that we can learn, so that we can know what we believe, so we can know what our doctrine is. We need to know, we need to learn in order to be able to do this. And then second, they said that they have mock calls or you know, just mock times when they'll work through these things. And you know, that's the great thing about our small groups here. Uh, small groups in women's Bible studies, small groups at other ministries encompass. We have so many opportunities for small groups, but in small groups, you can kind of work through these things together. You can discuss and dialogue about these things and say, you know, you think this is a red level issue or a green level issue? How far should I go with this? How much should we be diligent or fervent about continuing the dialogue on these things? And then uh, they said that they observe live calls. So they go out in a sense with a mentor. 
You know, that's what we need to do. We need to align ourselves with those who are more seasoned in the faith than us. Uh, someone who can mentor us, who can hold us by the hand, who can link arms with us and show us, this is how you do it. This is how you think through these things. This is when you really draw a line in the sand, and this is when you graciously agree to disagree or have a conversation while staying loving and on the same page. And then finally, they go to the live situation where you just go out and you do these things. So we learn, we talk, we watch, and we go. We need to become skillful in sorting through these things. And when we do get to those points of disagreement, we've got to keep that biblical balance between holding fast to accurate doctrine and being loving at the same time. We see this in Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. Ephesians 4, 14 and 15 begins by talking about, uh, picking up actually a dialogue about us not being children, us not being immature, tossed, it says, to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, right? We need to be firm. We need to know what we believe. We need to be settled in what we understand by human cun cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather we are to speak the truth in love. So we understand and we know our doctrine and we communicate that with an attitude of love so that we grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ. And there's that Christian call in our life, again, another call to biblical balance where we stand fast on doctrine but at the same time, we do it in love. We don't lose our attitude or our posture of love. And practically speaking, we often have to ask ourselves, you know, how will Christ be most glorified in this situation? In this specific incidence, how can I bring the most glory to Christ? Uh, you know, let's say somebody wants me to attend with them a church where I don't fully agree with the doctrine. Do I go or do I not? I mean, do they want me to attend once or do they want me to start serving there? That's gonna make a difference, right? Do they want me to become a member there? Or do they want me to just visit with them once? And are they someone who maybe for the first time is warming up to Christian things? If I go with them, would that encourage them? Would they maybe come to compass with me as a result? Or if I go with them, will it be a stumbling block? Will it be giving the thumbs up to something that I know is wrong and I don't want to encourage? We've got to think through these things. We can't just link arms for the sake of linking arms, which is a lot of what our culture wants us to do. You know, just say everyone's okay and everyone's gonna be good and just link arms with everybody. Well, you know, we're not called to do that. We're called to know our doctrine and to stand firm on our doctrine. But at the same time, we're not called to go to war when there's no reason for war. When we're looking at these green issues or these third level issues, we're to build each other up in love. And we see a very practical example of this in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, if you want to, turn to Acts 15, 36 through 40, where we see this, in a sense, actually lived out. Uh, in Acts 15, 36 through 40, it says, and some 
after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, so Paul and his friend, his companion, his coworker Barnabas, Paul said, hey, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. He's saying, let's go back to the churches where we preach Christ and see how everyone's doing. I think this would be a great idea. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought, no. Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So earlier, John called Mark had deserted them. He ditched them. And Paul's like, no, I'm not taking John with us. I know he's your cousin, Barnabas, but no, we're not bringing him with us. And it says in verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement. And you know, sharp disagreement in the Greek means sharp disagreement. I mean, there was a really strong disagreement between the two of them so that they separated. They separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas. So there was a sharp disagreement and they separated. And you know what? That's okay because they weren't at war with one another. They weren't at odds at, with one another. They still loved and supported one another and were eventually able to even work together. We see later when Paul addressed the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, he's talking about his right uh, to abstain from working for a living and be supported by the church. And he says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living, including Barnabas with himself as a fellow worker and contender for the gospel. In Colossians 4.10, in Colossians 4.10, Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. Hey, if he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul saying, hey, Barnabas and Mark and I were all on the same team. And then 2 Timothy 4.11, at the very end of Paul's life, in 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, Luke alone is with me. Hey, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So they were able to go different ways in part when they had this sharp disagreement, which is okay, right? And yet it didn't destroy their relationships. There wasn't sin involved, it was just a different vision or even doctrinal differences. And again, we see that with Whitfield and Wesley. This ability to passionately believe what they believe and even publicly communicate about it and yet love and support one another. And if we don't get good at this, we're going to waste our time disputing about level three things when we should be focusing on those level one things when we should be focusing on those. In fact, we see that in the book of Jude. Uh, Jude written by Jesus' half-brother. One chapter, so we go to verse three. Jude verse three, where Jude says here, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So he said, hey, I wanted to write to you about some things. He said, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's saying, guess what? A red level issue came up. And now there's some confusion concerning the gospel. 
And even though I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, we got to focus over to this because we got a red level issue in our midst. We have got to look at that. We've got to contend for this. We have got to, third point, contend for the gospel. We have got to contend for the gospel. That uh, Greek word there in Jude 3 that Jude uses, contend, is epagizomai, epagonizomai. And it means uh, to exert an intense effort or struggle on behalf of something. Uh, We get the word agonize from this word. We need to agonize, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That is the gospel. The message of how an eternal soul can get her life right with God. That's what we need to be contending for. We need to contend for the gospel, the position of the gospel. The gospel that says that when we hear the gospel and we respond in repentance and faith, we are saved. And that salvation rewires us and produces a different life. We see works that result. So many cult groups out there or aberrant groups want to tweak the gospel and say, you know, when we hear the gospel and we respond in faith and we have the right works, then we're saved. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not teach that we are saved by works. And if we hear anybody or any group saying that we need to add works to our faith in order to be saved, we've got to contend for the gospel. The message stated in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. You didn't work for this. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No work can save you. You know, Whitfield in his last sermon said, saved by works, it would be easier for me to climb to the moon on a rope made out of sand than to be saved by works. It's impossible. And yet, you know, there are those that will say there's no place for works in the gospel equation. That's what Jude was dealing with there. In Jude 3, those who were saying it doesn't matter how you live. All you need to do is agree to facts. You just need to see that there's a God, that you're a sinner, and that Jesus exists, or Jesus died for your sins, and you're good. It doesn't make a difference whether this rewires you from the inside out or not. And that is not true. Because you know what's so interesting? That Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that we just read, saved by grace through faith, has nothing to do with your works. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast the very next verse uses works again. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So there's the works. The works come as a result of our salvation. If a human soul responds to the gospel with genuine saving faith, that human soul will live differently, not only eternally, but in this life. And that's what the gospel says. And we have got to contend for that. We've got to contend for that, even when the world around us is saying, all you have to do is agree to the facts. It's not true. 
if you have saving faith that changes you from the inside out and you will live and think differently than before you were converted. We gotta contend for the gospel. In practice, we've gotta have conversations. We gotta get out there and talk to people. We've gotta talk to them about these things. We've gotta listen to what they say. We gotta learn to be quiet, to hear what they're saying. We gotta ask them questions. What do you believe? We gotta redirect the conversation to truths about God, to truths about the fact that they're sinful, they're separated from him to truth about their only hope being in Christ and their need to rightly respond to that gospel message. You know, and for many of us, some of our friends, some of our family members might agree to the facts, but we know based on the fruit of their life, based on the works of their life, that they're not genuinely converted. And we might have to have those hard conversations again and again and again. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 7, 18 through 20. Matthew 7, 18 through 20, Jesus said, a healthy tree, it can't. It doesn't have the ability to bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, you will recognize them. You will know whether someone truly has saving faith by their fruits, right? By their life, by what they do, by what they think. And if you're reading along in the DBR with us on Monday, we hit in a heavy passage of Matthew, Matthew 10, 34 through 39, where Jesus said in there, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. I mean, there are going to be times that those around us don't want to hear the truth. They don't want us contending for the gospel, agonizing for the gospel, but we must. We must. And all through that process, even when they stop listening to us, we can still contend for the gospel through our prayers. Uh, Jesus talked about this in Luke 18. Luke 18, one through seven. I don't have time to read it, but he began by saying, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. We're called to always pray and not lose heart. And then he goes on to talk about a widow who went to an unjust judge and kept knocking and bothering him. And he said, finally, the unjust judge said, fine, I'll give you what you want because of your persistence. And Jesus said in the same way, let's not lose heart. Let's not lose heart when we're agonizing, when we're contending for the souls of humans to be reconciled to God. When we stop persisting, it can reveal that we've just lost heart, that we've grown weary, that we've gotten tired, that it takes so much energy and effort and work, we don't wanna do it anymore. But remember, that's exactly what contend means, that epagizomai, it's to wrestle and work it's all hard work. We have to know what we believe. We have to be able to skillfully sort through the differences. We need to know if it's a level three issue, we love and encourage and support. If it's a level one issue, it's high risk and we gotta get in there and do whatever we can. We've got to contend for the gospel because in the end, the only thing that matters on this planet is where we will spend eternity. And you know, speaking of eternity, back to the uh, Wesley Whitfield. 
Again, a lot of their dialogue about their doctrinal differences was public. And you know, one of Wesley's followers, one of his adherents, one said to him, you know, do you think we're gonna see Mr. Whitfield in heaven? And Wesley said, no, I don't. He said, I think he's gonna be so near the throne and you and I so far away <laughs> that we're not gonna get inside of him. You know, we've got to contend for the faith but not war over things that don't really matter. We've got to learn to work through these things. Let's pray. God, help us to know, help us to know what we believe. Help us to be able to skillfully sort through all of our doctrinal differences. Help us not to despise and run from doctrine. Help us to be not like immature children who are tossed to and fro by every wave and every wind. Help us, God, to contend, to contend in love, to hold fast to the biblical gospel, to preach and teach and tell others how a human soul can be reconciled to you. What the right response to that gospel is, Lord. God, help us to be prayerful about these things, not to lose heart. God, I thank you so much for this group of women. I thank you for our Bible study here. I thank you, God, for Compass Bible Church. I thank you for our pastors who work so hard to agonize through these truths and these things so that they can present us with good, solid, sound doctrine. God, but most of all, I thank you for Jesus. I mean, if it were not for Jesus, none of this would be true for us. None of this would make a difference for us. We would have no hope to look forward to. But because of Christ, we can all cry from the bottom of our heart, Maranatha. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, we await that day that we will meet you together in the air and the clouds and be with you forever. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.